What is up, folks? Justin Kana here. Today on the Emulsion Podcast, we talk all about Rene Redzepi's new cookbooks, more Michelin news, Instagram food, soap, oddly enough, and, Mich- and <laughs> Michelin, Facebook delivering your next meal. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is episode 35 of The Emulsion. We are live on YouTube right now. I finally figured out the comment system, so hopefully if you are joining and leaving your comments, those will not get lost. Uh, If you're awesome enough to be subscribed and have notifications turned on, this is where you'll hopefully start to join this lovely live stream of ours. This is where you get to be involved in the conversation. If you're new here, this is the show where I read articles for you and give you the cliff notes. Not really, but kind of. I mean, I was thinking about today's intro, and I was like, you know, I really do save you folks a ton of time yourselves. I get a lot of inspiration from the show from watching Philip DeFranco's show. If any of you folks watch him, you'll know kind of what I'm going for with this Emulsion podcast, except for unlike the PDS, I want live. I want it live. I want your perspectives and your questions. That's what makes this show great is you folks. If you're not on YouTube or you're listening to this after the live stream, I would encourage you to tweet at me if you aren't listening uh, at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag the Emulsion so I can find you with, you know, any questions you might have or any stories you want recommended for the next week's show. Today's beverage is a very, very weak uh, cold brew. I brewed it a, a few hours ago. I know you're supposed to let it sit for like 24 hours, but I didn't want to go through the trouble of uh, brewing another cup of coffee. So this is kind of like a weak cold brew. Same same mug as last week. I'm still obsessed with this mug. Hawaiian, Hawaiian coffee as I'm trying to rifle through the rest of that that's currently chilling around in my pantry. So let's get right into this week's stories. First up is a headline many of you probably already saw, and that is centering around the massively influential chef out of Denmark, Rene Redzepi. And the first line in this article says it better than I can. He's getting into the publishing game. So Foundations of Flavor is going to be his new series of books. There are going to be three of them, and they're all going to be centered around specific techniques that have made Noma so special. So the first one is all about fermentation. It will be coming out in October of 2018, so that's literally a year from now. Uh, We're going to have to wait on that. But supposedly, the goal of this one, written with David Zilber, who is Noma's director of fermentation, is to, quote, inspire people to explore the possibilities of fermentation at home, end quote. So the second cookbook in the series, remember this is going to be a three-part series, Uh, the second book hasn't officially been announced yet. This one is, again, is called um, the, uh, it's it's just called Fermentation. The second book, it hasn't been all the way announced, but it's going to explore the foraging practices that Noma uses for its menu. So this is already sounding very, very... Scandinavian in, in origin. So it has fermentation, it has foraging... Any guesses at what the third book would probably be? I'd I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. But um, Rene Redzepi will also be working with um, the same publishing company, but they're going to start to also roll out a biannual magazine. So it's going to be called Dispatches, and it's going to be edited by the old Lucky Peach co-founder, Chris Ying. So if you've been following along on the show for a while, we actually covered when Lucky Peach closed down. And it was going to be curious to see where any of these ex-employees would go because they have a very, very specific set of skills, right? They're really good at making food interesting enough for the written form. And this is no shocker. He's uh, Chris Ying, partners with Red Zeppi, and in September of 2018, which is no doubt a kind of intelligent date to assist with marketing for the Foundations of Flavor book, they're going to announce this or release this first publication of Dispatches. So essentially what Dispatches will be is 
them taking all of the content from the MAD Symposium, which is Red Zeppi's uh, annual conference where he brings a bunch of chefs and farmers and uh, food media personalities to Copenhagen, and they have a bunch of different talks and keynotes and presentations. And Red Zeppi hopes that dispatches will be able to take those discussions, which are still available online in video form. If you haven't checked those out, I highly recommend those. A lot of really, really great keynotes from again, farmers and fishermen and chefs from all over the world, but taking all of that content and making it accessible in the written form is going to be more or less the goal of this new publication. Another piece worth mentioning is that Redzepi is partnering with Artisan, which is um, the publishing company that he's, he's working with, and that it marks him straying away from Phidon, who is the publisher that did both of his previous books, but the article here references the different approach um, to the books that he's coming out with now, where the the ones that he's partnering with Artisan for, the Foundations of Flavor ones, are going to be more technique-focused, where Fidon uh, more or less specializes in more of the comprehensive restaurant story-focused minimal photography aesthetic uh, that most of us probably know pretty, pretty well from seeing any of the books that have come out in, in recent years from some of these chefs. And for me, I'm I'm pretty pumped to see this. I'm honestly surprised that Renee would be writing another book with everything that they have going on. I'd expect some sort of like database or digital something, but there's no doubt when you, you're at a profile that he's at, the sales are almost guaranteed. So why not kind of delve into it, especially if you have the logistics in place to make sure that it's at least profitable. So also thinking a little bit more legacy for him, uh, it'll it's more than likely going to play out into making sure they can eventually say that they literally have like a Nordic library of, of sorts with all of the techniques and methods and ingredients documented, and that will far outlive the restaurant or any of the chefs that are working there now. And that is, to me, what I see this being more or less a play for for him is a legacy play. So, however, uh, as different and unique as the last Noma book was, the little three-volume one, if any of you have have read that one, I didn't personally get a ton of value from it. I actually sold that book set, uh, and it's actually not their fault, you know, with what they do. It, it's great for the person who's uninitiated, who has never been to Scandinavia, who wants to kind of get a peek into what they do. But to me, the what Noma does relies so heavily on the product itself and what they're getting in at the restaurant. And if you're able to take that information and translate it to wherever you are in the world, it's actually really, really valuable. But a lot of it is really simple technique, right? If you look at a lot of the recipes they have, it's, you know, trimming, charring, blanching, pureeing, or making oils, and then focusing on the presentation of something by cutting it or layering it in a certain way. I can only hope that by October 2018, we have enough room on my bookshelf over there for this book to kind of fit into our cookbook club we've got going on on Patreon right now. Uh, but yeah, that's my, my shameless plug for, for, for that platform. Sorry, sorry, not sorry for that shameless plug. Uh, question on YouTube right now from Brandon just came across your channel and picked up a Husky toolbox and one of the palette knives from town Cutler. Both are awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching. I'm so glad you got a chance to pick one of those up. Be curious to hear if you're in San Francisco or Chicago, because we covered that story a few weeks ago to see, uh, cause they opened up a second shop. So that was super, super interesting. Uh, yeah, the the question or comment from Sebastian saying it sounds a lot like the Nordic cookbook from uh, Magnus Nielsen from Fabikin, and that is essentially um, what I would hope that they are seeing. They saw him do that, and they're like, "Well, what if we go one step further?" Because this, I never had a desire to pick up that giant Nordic compendium that he came up with because it was just too intimidating. There was just a ton of information. 
I'm sure it was insanely well researched and there's a ton of great material in there, but I would never personally go reference that book to be like, I need some inspiration today or I want to learn how to do blank. I would never go to that cookbook for that sort of utility. So hopefully he's solving this problem by saying, you know, we want to learn a little bit more about fermentation. We want to start to implement a fermentation program into our restaurant. We should go get that Noma book that they wrote uh, in the Foundations of Flavor series. That, to me, is what he's hopefully looking to accomplish with this whole series. So next up, uh, Michelin is in the news again, shocker, for two reasons. The first that we want to talk about on the show today is that they delayed their announcement of their San Francisco Bay Area guide due to the horrific and absolutely devastating fires that have wreaked havoc in Northern California last week. So shout out to everyone over there. I got in touch with a lot of my friends that are still there. I lived in Napa for two years myself. It was so, so crazy to hear the events that are still affecting that area. My hearts go out to that part of the U.S. right now. And Michelin had some very similar feelings, saying, quote, recognizing the turmoil and tragedy of the fires that are still burning, we understand this is a time for grief and recovery, not celebration, end quote. So a ton of restaurants rallied to kind of provide resources to those affected through meals and clothing and water. So yes, it has yet to be seen when they will release their guide. It's Michelin season around around the world, so no doubt we'll kind of be covering those stories quite a bit going forward into the next few weeks as new restaurants get their stars received and stripped away from them. So speaking of stars, we covered it two weeks ago. It's in the news again, this time out of Singapore. Andre Chang, the celebrated restaurant from the world's 50 best restaurant, Andre, he has two Michelin stars and he asked to get them returned and not to be included in the 2018 edition of the guide, which is no doubt going to be announced later this year. So the decision is not related to the awards themselves, at least that's what the article says, but the psychology of wanting perfection that apparently never came for him. So there's apparently industry buzz about him not being able to get three stars. That's been really, really tough for him. And that is the supposed cause of this decision from him. Quote, the chef's plans to spend more time at his restaurant Raw in Taipei and specifically requested that it not be included in future Michelin guides as well. End quote. So the article talks about the Sebastian Bra piece that we, of course, covered here on the show and also gives a little funny Joel Robichon stat where he says, one star gives you 20% more business, 40% increase happens when you get two stars, and three apparently gives you 100% more business. I feel like that has some traction to it, but at the same time, I'm also super empathetic to the fact that the guide has different connotations all over the world, right? The article ends in a bit of a depressing way saying, quote, losing a star can lead to the end of a restaurant entirely. And while not in danger of that, Chang and Bra clearly were affected. It all leaves as an, as an important question whether star refusal will become a growing trend, end quote. It's part of a thing, I, I don't know what to call it, I'm noticing it, and I, something that I wholeheartedly agree with, where chefs are kind of taking back control in their, their status, in their stance, and what they believe in. It's 2017, right? You aren't at the mercy of these guides anymore. Back in the day, Michelin would be of huge value and an asset to you because they essentially told your story in these guides that people would kind of use to know where your restaurant is, what you're about, and why they should make the trek to come visit you. Now that the utility of the guide is gone in that sense, most people I know use Michelin as kind of like a test of quality, making sure that the place that they made their reservation at is worth their hard-earned cash, as opposed to figuring out where where the restaurant is and what kind of food they serve. That's that's very easily accessible through other platforms on the internet, even so much as, you know, a lot of us probably go to a restaurant's Instagram page before we'll go to their website. So 
now that that's gone, as multiple sources have mentioned about Michelin also diluting their brand over the years, these high-profile chefs are basically disregarding them to kind of send a message, essentially taking back, again, control of how their own personal stories are told. And I'm 100% about this. Why should we as chefs be at the mercy of a tire company, right? It's an incredible display of ego as well with these chefs because a lot of people put their life's work into achieving those stars and to have that humility as a chef and self-awareness to know that this isn't for you, I think that's huge, right? And I'm not 100% sure of the reasons. I'm not 100% sure that the reasons that Chef Andre and Chef Bra are the same, like their reasoning behind why they gave their stars back the same. Um... But, you know, the the fact that they both made headlines within two weeks of each other is definitely making waves in the industry itself. Next up is a interesting story. I wasn't 100% sure I was going to cover it on the show today. And it's all about this guy, Adam Leonti, who signed a non-compete agreement in his contract when he got hired at a restaurant in Brooklyn. But after he resigned, which was apparently a no-no in the contract, he was prohibited from working in any New York City food service establishment for one year. He's currently waiting it out in Berlin until the time period is up, and that's the short version. Uh, But after reading it here, there are definitely a few nuggets to be gained that I want to pass along to you folks. As per usual, all of these articles are linked in the show notes. So if you have any questions or want to do a little bit of research for yourself, want to dive deeper into a certain story, that's definitely there for you. But one of the, this is apparently one of the rarest cases ever taken to court in the hospitality industry, and I want to emphasize why, and maybe you learn a little bit of something, something from it. So it's rare in the sense that it stayed in the court for so long and actually held up. Most of the cases like this apparently settle at some point in the process, but it's in, an interesting sentence from this article is from uh, Royal Salins, who is a partner at an employment group in New York City who is involved in the entire court uh, process, but what he said was, "quote the when the only reason people are coming to your restaurant is the chef, losing the chef because becomes irreparable harm. If he or she opens across the street or in the area, that could greatly affect the business. That sort of harm means a judge will likely reinforce the non-compete." End quote. Another interesting piece was saying that the chef Adam Leonti, this is the 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 guy that we're talking about in the story, the guy who got banned from any New York City restaurant, was quote unknown end quote before taking the job, and that all of the PR that he was getting by working at that restaurant gave them every reason to hold up the non compete, aka that's kind of like fancy talk for saying we brought you into this world, now we're making sure you can't use that to put us out of business or at least take business away from us. So who's in the right here? Does it kind of piss you off as a chef? Would you be pissed if it were your business and someone took all of the knowledge that they gained from you and went across town and opened another place? To me, this is kind of a short-term fight-or-flight response by the business. If you build a business contingent on you know one person and you don't make them an owner, you don't give them any sort of reason to be invested, you, to me, have zero right to be pissed when that person leaves, right? Be proud of your alumni, support them, don't make any kind of, don't make it a transactional relationship. You know, when someone works for you, that relationship is what keeps this industry so great and what can kind of transcend one restaurant and kind of encompass an entire city that wins. We literally had that story out of Australia a few weeks back where the cities, the city came together in the best way to kind of support each other from restaurant to restaurant. And I can't, even think about a non-compete case like this surviving in that city in Australia. But again, this is the emulsion where these are just my opinions. What are your thoughts? Leave them down below in the comments because I'd love to know what you guys are thinking. This is a really polarizing scenario depending on if you're in that 
chef, uh, executive chef position, or if you're in the owner scenario and you hire people to kind of do things around you, I'd really, really be interested in your thoughts because it's interesting. Next up is actually an interview that actually caught my attention because of the headline. It was almost kind of clickbaity in the pre- pleasurable sense, which rarely happens, right? Normally they draw you in with a catchy headline and then you're like, this isn't at all what I came for. But in this case, I clicked for one thing, but what I found was even better. And in this article, that's all about Alvin Kalin, the chef of the famed egg slut in LA and now Paper Planes, which is a concept out of New York City that's focusing on breakfast plates and toasts. So go ahead and read the article for yourself. It's an interview that Eater did with him. Um, If you're interested in going that kind of fast, casual, healthy breakfast bowl kind of route, there's a lot of good nuggets in there for you if that's kind of what you're kind of striving towards or pushing for. But what stood out to me was his focus on the location, right? Egg Slut became a smash hit in LA, but now he's following more or less his intuition with Paper Planes. He could open another Egg Slut in New York City, but to him, there's zero reason to. It's literally the combination of paying attention to the market as well in a different, completely different city, as well as noticing how he as a consumer changes when he goes from LA to New York City. He says, quote, it's kind of weird, I guess, because when I'm in New York, I feel like I have to eat a lot healthier because I'm already walking everywhere. I need more power food. When I'm in LA, I drive everywhere so I can hang out in traffic and be full because I ate barbecue. In New York, it's like having to walk that 0.9 miles to my next destination. If I took the train, it's still 0.6 miles away from the place, so I might as well walk, end quote. So to me, this is the X factor that makes a lot of restaurant sequels kind of special if you're if we're talking about it in that aspect. If you have a great restaurant in say Paris for example and you get big, hopefully a component of that you making it big was kind of the community or the sense of place that you create. It wouldn't make sense to just kind of clone that restaurant and uproot it and just plop it down in another city like Toronto, right? You have to think about what's best for Toronto, at least in my opinion. We've had struggles with that ourselves, me and my other chef, Hubert. We were writing really, really amazing menus, at least menus that we were excited about. Our food was solid, but if you, we, we took a moment to take a step back and look at it and ask, we asked ourselves, is this the best food we can make for 2017 Seattle? And if the answer is no, you kind of have to go back to the drawing board with it. We have a little hilarious Starbucks dish we're doing at a pop-up in the first week of November. So if you're pumped to, I'm pumped to have you guys see that if you're following along on YouTube or Instagram, that will definitely find its way into those feeds. But I'd be interested to hear, do you think that it's possible to kind of take a restaurant and clone it and put it into a new city or does it have to kind of gain its own identity when it moves to a different geographical location? Next up, your probably using them if you're if you've gone to any decently high-end restaurant over the past few years I know we certainly used it at the restaurant in Norway uh Aesop soaps and let's start with that it's pronounced Aesop not Aesop like the stories you can you, you probably sensed my little hesitation before I even said that because I knew I was about to make that point but it's you know, it's an Australian company which totally makes sense now why it's called Aesop but it has an overwhelming presence in hotels and restaurants and bars, and it's their own doing. They they, they they turn down certain restaurants, which makes them exclusive. Suzanne Santos, Aesop's general manager, says, quote, Our relationships with restaurants and hotels are created from a shared affinity for exemplary food and hospitality. If that affinity isn't present or reciprocated on both sides, we do not partner with the restaurant, end quote. 
And I just thought this was interesting. It's, it's just a really, really clutch move by a brand to make sure that they secure a niche and at the same time noticing a very, very clear white space, right? All restaurants have bathrooms and all bathrooms need soap, so why not be that soap? Uh, plus, it's expensive AF, so there's no doubt that they're kind of making some great profits on a bottle of $73 parsley antioxidant seed serum. I literally, that's straight from the article. $73 for a bottle of parsley antioxidant seed serum. And while probably not at that retail price point, the just to give you an example, the Gramercy Park Hotel in New York City literally uses 250,000 units per year. And hopefully that puts it into perspective for you. Speaking of partnering with restaurants, Facebook just announced they've added a curious little tab on your Explore page, and it's called the Order Food Menu. Yes, you can literally get food from your favorite restaurants that you're already ordering from because Facebook, in this case, is acting as a middleman for this scenario. The idea being you kind of... Either you're bored scrolling through Facebook, or you see someone post either a photo or tag themselves, like, check in to a place at a restaurant at, you know, like that Indian joint down the street, and you should just be able to stay on the Facebook app, tap through it, and decide what you want, and then whoever is already partnered with that restaurant to deliver it, whether it's, you know, some companies in the U.S. are like Postmates or Caviar or Uber Eats, they carry on the process from there, all with the hope of, you know, you're sitting on your couch on a Thursday night, and you can order food and then continue to swipe through your newsfeed as normal. The idea being you stay on the Facebook app. You don't have to leave the app to make your food order. This entire onboarding process, the logistics, the relationships, all of this work is done to make sure you keep your attention on Facebook. So the article references with 70 million active businesses on Facebook, all the data, and, and of course, all the data that they have on all of us, it's really hard to argue with the intelligence of this move. But this could be a huge play for the content side of things. This is immediately my brain going to the content uh, part, part of things, is that you know, you could literally put out a video about a new dish that you're creating, and that will lead to a button that seamlessly allows the consumer to make a real order instead of kind of just browse the menu or, you know, make a future reservation. To me, that's super, super smart, and that and, and I'm all about it, and that kind of bridges the gap between these delivery platforms being a utility where you use them to communicate with a restaurant and, and make your payment, but now it literally introduces so many more marketing opportunities because, I mean, it's a comment from Sebastian saying, how lazy can a person get? There's no doubt in my mind that if you can save a person one click or one tap on their phone or in their browser, you will win. You're saving people time. And the fact that we don't have to wait for a screen to load is enough selling point in and of itself to make sure that people will use use whatever product you're you're kind of pitching to to them i think it's super super smart um i'd be interested to use it myself i will probably no doubt do something about that this week ordering from facebook is going to feel a little bit weird but if it's if it's pushing convenience it's going to win always always so last up here our non-industry story if you're watching live this is kind of the time to shoot your questions over in the comments i always love chatting with you folks but this week's story is kind of it's only kind of a non-industry story, but I had to highlight another Patreon creator way bigger than I am, and that's Binging with Babish. Maybe some of you have seen him before. We've covered him on the show before, but he's coming out with his very own cooking quote-unquote channel, you know, kind of, if you will, with Squarespace. And it's insane to see his growth with the power of the internet. And if you're into, you know, movies or TV shows and love that kind of satirical humor, you'll definitely, definitely want to check him out. I know this is still on... It's 
still in the realm of cooking, and that's one of the reasons I call it don't call it a non-industry show 100%, but to me, it's not even close to kind of like the fine dining or restaurant end of the spectrum that we talk about on the show. I watch, I personally watch his stuff for entertainment. And if we're being honest, that's the real purpose of the non-industry show, isn't it? To kind of get you out of that bubble. Give you a little bit of entertainment that's outside of restaurant news. So with that, this has been episode 35 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do as for as little as $1 per month, that's like less than a bus ticket, I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. That's where you get a ton of amazing access behind the scenes, gear giveaways, industry advice, cookbook reviews, and so much more, again, for just $1 a month. That's literally $12 a year. Not just because I'm great at math, but because Netflix just raised their prices. So you can literally support what I do, help me to get to doing this full time. You can do that for an entire year for what Netflix charges you for one month of their amazing programming. So I sincerely appreciate your support. And for everyone listening that's already supporting, I can't thank you folks enough. If you have stories that you want covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Subscribe if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I sincerely, sincerely appreciate your ears. So thank you so much. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.